Pints with Jack, Season 3, Episode 39. Voyage of the Dawn Treader, Part 1. Good morning and welcome to Pints with Jack, a podcast where two enthusiastic C.S. Lewis amateurs get together, share a beverage and discuss a work of C.S. Lewis. Now this season we've read Till We Have Faces, but it's that time in the season when we return to Narnia. And for the last two episodes, Matt and I, we've been discussing The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, the book. And in today's episode, we're going to be discussing the 2010 movie adaptation. My name is David, and I'm joined by Matt. I'm not going to give you a nickname, Bush. <laughs> I, I was looking at the notes. I'm like, hey, there's nothing there. I'm so disappointed. <laughs> well, that's also because we have extra people with us today sitting around a table in The Eagle and Child. We have the boys from The Lamppost Listener, Phil and Daniel. So today is basically our Avengers crossover episode in the C.S. Lewis podcasting world. Guys, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having us. We are so excited to be joining y'all. This is years in the making. <laughs> Indeed. And I, I've, I've been sending out tweets the last few weeks of uh, scenes from the Avengers. And I said, it's happening soon. And it's just, I know it's been confusing people. It's like, why, why are you doing this? Uh, it was just so wonderful seeing us all come on the video chat. And it's, it's, it's like, on your left. It's like, I can hear the inspiring music in, in my mind. <laughs> I've been told, as much as I would like to be Iron Man, I've been told I look a lot like Captain America. So I'll That's take a Captain little humble, humble brag from Matt, right? Yeah. <laughs> That's like, I wish I looked like Robert Downey Jr., but I'm told I'm more of a Chris Evans right. guy. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's so hard to be me. Yeah. yeah that's I wouldn't mind being the billionaire playboy, but you know what? I guess I'll take Captain America. Matt, I also think you look like Captain America, but you're Steve Rogers before he takes the super serum. Oh, <laughs> I knew you were going to say that. Oh, I knew it. That's probably true. I actually saw that scene. And I go, huh, I wonder what could happen if I could put on muscle like that. I was going to say, Matt, have you seen the Avengers? Because I know like a kind of a, a running gag on the show is that you, you're not a big movie guy. So it's a fair question. Until the last Avengers came out, I was in San Diego then on vacation for like a week. And so I watched five or six of them in preparation for it because my buddy wanted to go opening night and uh, I had to watch some of them. So I watched the Captain America. I watched the ones that online said were critical. I didn't watch them all. I just watched whatever ones you needed to watch to see the last one. Typical Matt, doing the bare minimum as usual. I read, I read the spark notes and I, and I decided to go to the opening <laughs> night. We're good. Yeah. <laughs> and it was great and I loved every bit of it. <laughs> okay. So here at Pints with Jack, we have a drink of the week. And uh, I am drinking Captain Morgan Rum. Uh, continuing on from the last weeks when we were talking about the Voyage of the Dawn Treader, since I deemed that appropriate. And the guys from the Lamppost Listener, y you'll be relieved to find out that I have already told all of my pirate jokes, so you won't be exposed to them. Well, I'm drinking uh, Wild Turkey American Honey, an exceptionally smooth liqueur blended with pure honey and bourbon whiskey. <laughs> I know. I have not had any to drink yet, guys. Two sips. Daniel, Daniel and Phil, are you drinking anything? 
Yeah, I am drinking uh, mead from Charm City Mead Works. It's apple cinnamon, and I picked it specifically because uh, mead, in honor of the mead that is drunk at the magician's uh, house in in the Voyage of the Dawn Treader, and then it's apple cinnamon, so it's actually quite sweet. And I thought that was nice uh, for the sweet water that we see at the end of the book. So, or the movie in this case. Wow, yeah. that is that is impressive. <laughs> I, I, I'm impressed. Mine fits with that. Because mine's got a cinnamony flavor to it. It's, it tastes a little bit like Fireball, but with a sweetness to it. And you totally thought about that in advance, didn't you, Matthew? That's exactly right. <laughs> <laughs> you stole my thunder there. And what about you, Phil? I'm drinking a warming swirl of ginger, galangal, and golden turmeric in a Puka brand herbal tea. <laughs> Are you sick? <laughs> I knew some of those words. <laughs> no, if I if I don't uh, have my herbal tea in the morning, I'm just not myself. <laughs> what time is it? Where are you at? It's 12.30. 12.30? He has just got up. <laughs> he was he was doing it based on uh, D- David's time in the West Coast. He wanted, he didn't want him to feel, to feel excluded. <laughs> I'm not making any comments about everyone drinking liquor at 9.30 in the morning over there. <laughs> it's five o'clock somewhere. That's right. Uh, now, uh, we'll get yeah, on to a toast maybe. in a moment, but we need a quote of the week. And I decided that I'd actually choose a quotation that's explicitly in the movie, which is, stop flapping your wings like a drunken pelican. <laughs> and uh, Wait, David. Yes. Isn't, isn't, uh, isn't the one with Adeline Speaks at the end also only in the movie? Oh, you mean the touching line that he gives to Reaper Cheap? Yes. That, that would have been a, a more you heartfelt choose choice. <sighs> but we're not going to talk about that scene in this episode, which is why I didn't choose it. Oh, okay, good. You better choose it for the next <laughs> one then. <laughs> uh, and just to be clear, so we're setting up this episode like a Pints of Jack episode, and we're going to have a part two, which will be much more like a Lamppost Listener episode. Anyway, back to the quote of the week. It's stop flapping your wings like a drunken pelican. And listeners, it's your challenge to try and work this phrase into a conversation sometime this week. That is brilliant because you totally can. Someone's just kind of losing it a little bit, complaining, and I just be like, Dude, stop flapping your wings like a drunken pelican. Just get yourself together. Well, we had a listener reach out to us that, 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 and she said that whenever she doesn't like something, she always go, lies of poets, lies <laughs> of poets from Till We Have Faces. So I'm just going to try and build up a list of all of the essential C.S. Lewis phrases from his books, which have to be worked into everyday conversation. Uh, a little bit later, we're going to, well, actually, no, that was in the book. In the book, Reaper Cheap keeps calling people poltroon. And I, I think that's a word we need to bring back. Mm, I like it. I'm still working on Nicker's in a twist and uh, bugger into my, my repertoire. So I've got a few things now. How is that working out for you, buddy? Not, not good. I end up going back to the swear words. I've got to work on that. David's very good about how that's bad and he's correct. So I'm trying to start getting some, some British expressions in that will help me. Um, it's like a, an, an Eliza Doolittle, but I'm going to turn him into a gentleman rather than a lady. You have to be careful with some of the phrases from over there because certain words mean very different things here. They do, they do. And people give you strange looks if you use them. <sighs> that yeah. was my first week in the States. <laughs> I did just read a quote on Twitter that says, turn to the Lord and say, I'm a clay and you're the potter. It's like, David, you're my potter. Um, I'm the clay. You can just morph me. <laughs> no, I don't take that job. I give that one to the Lord. Uh, I'm not, I'm not <laughs> accepting would say any that. blame. That's what you should say. <laughs> the right answer. <laughs> so each week on Pints with Jack, we toast one of our upper tier patron supporters. And today we're toasting Peter Kavnar. 
So if you'll all please raise your glasses. Peter, in this life you'll have some successes, much like the movie adaptation of The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe. You'll also have some times when you face troubles, much like the movie adaptation of Prince Caspian. But I pray that if you ever face a real disaster, much like the movie adaptation of The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, uh, I pray that you'll call upon the great lion and hope for a brighter future someday with Netflix. Cheers. <laughs> Cheers. Cheers. To that. <laughs> Cheers. David, that is slow clap worthy. Oh, that was wonderful. That was brilliant. And Peter sent the nicest message into our Slack channel that was just about the ministry and loving supporting it. And I'm terrible at responding to those things. So this is my time. That was really kind of you to say that, Peter. So we are so grateful for you, your support, and uh, allowing us to move this forward. So how about lamppost and listener guys? We know you, but this is the first time. David, you haven't interviewed them without me, have you? I have not. There we go. So this is the first time you've been on the podcast. So how about you introduce yourselves? And let's start with you, Daniel. Yeah, so we run a podcast called The Lamp Post Listener. It is a show where we go chapter by chapter through the Chronicles of Narnia. And uh, this always works out really well because we just wrapped up season three where we read uh, each chapter of The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, and we are getting ready to launch into The Silver Chair. So uh, it's kind of similar in some of the things that y'all do that we we read a chapter uh, at a time, although I know you're reading a couple of chapters for Till We Have Faces. Um, but we just love the works of C.S. Lewis, especially, obviously, Narnia. And we just dive into them and talk about just how wonderful they are for both uh, young readers and older readers. That's fantastic. Phil, how about yourself? Yeah, so I'm Phil. I um, am a co-host with Daniel. Daniel does a ton of the audio work and the planning and the interacting with people. And I make the cover art and make little comments here and there throughout the show. So, so Phil, you're me, and uh, Daniel is David. <laughs> right. I'm kind of like the guy who's kind of like Captain America. <laughs> yes, perfect. You're Captain America. That's what I was getting at. Like a copy of a copy. <laughs> <laughs> and we didn't mention this, but one of the, the kind of fun parts of our show is that um, I have read most of the books as an adult, and I kind of refound them uh, as an educator, first reading them as a fourth grade teacher, and that's what made me fall in love with the books again. But Phil has never read them as an adult, so he each chapter we cover, he legitimately doesn't know what happens next. So that's a really fun part, kind of like what's been happening for y'all this season. This is, I mean, man, this dynamic is just very similar. David's the brain, I'm Pinky. Like I just, I most of these <laughs> books I go into, maybe I've read them once before, but. He knows a lot more about the Lewis stuff, so I'm enjoying it. So now I'm glad I have some company and I'm not on my own, Phil. Matt, so. I, have a, I have an idea. How about we do a spinoff podcast about Pinky and the Brain? We watch one episode. Every yeah, but who's going who's gonna to produce it? <laughs> <laughs> you guys are just going to be talking to one another and be like, oh, we didn't record it. I guess that was just fun hanging out. I didn't, I didn't say we were going to publish it. I said we should have a podcast. <laughs> okay. So if we ever get the boot because we don't do enough work for them, you and I can start like, let's make a pack here that we'll team up and create our own podcast just in case we get the boot. All right. Let's, let's get it on the record. <laughs> I've, I've already got the opening to that podcast. It's, what are we going to do today, Brain? Same thing we do every week, Pinky. Record an episode of Pinky and the Brain, the podcast. <laughs> just call it NARF. Oh. I am excited though today to be to be reuniting because I haven't talked to you guys since we met in North Carolina at the CS Lewis conference. Yeah. And that was a really fun time. You guys remember when so we were fun. sitting on the porch with uh Douglas Gresham? That was pretty crazy. 
that yeah. was something that really was special. It, and it was really was a joy just to get to hang out with y'all. It was, I, I told David, he was my first internet friend that I ever met in person. <laughs> it was like one of these weird things where Phil and I are driving, uh, to North Carolina. We're like, I like, what if they're different than, than they are online? <laughs> we're going through like, it felt like we were on our first day of like a freshman year of high school or something, you know? Yeah, it's more, oh, I, it's funny. I actually, um, my first experience with that was a listener and he listens, so eventually he'll hear this, but Jeff, uh, he reached out to me first time. I mean, we've had lots of people reach out to us, but then he was the first one to say, hey, I'm going to be in the area in New York. And we met up and we've become great friends and we keep in touch every couple months and chat on the phone. And I guess he would be my first internet friend as well in that sense. Yeah. I think we're living in this incredible time where I've had this happen with a lot of coworkers where you work for a company that's distributed and you video chat with people and um, for example, we had talked to David before on our podcast, but then to meet in person, you don't have any of the standard stuff to get over. You don't have to like find out each other's names and what you do for work. You already know the kind of this background. You can just, it's like you're meeting again, but you're meeting for the first time at the same time. That's exactly right. Yeah, it's kind of weird. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so let's, uh, before we jump into the movie itself, uh, I just wanted to get a, a poll of what people had seen before. Uh, who has seen all of the previous Walden movies? So Lion, Witch, the Wardrobe and Prince Caspian. Lamppost listener guys? Yes, we've, we've seen those multiple times. Excellent. And you've seen the BBC versions, is that correct? That is correct too. Excellent. Oh, I love the BBC versions one of these days. <laughs> and what about you, Matt? What do you think, David? <laughs> no. Uh, well, because I've had to see them the last two for our last times we've talked about these, I did. But prior to that, no. Uh, maybe Lion the Witch World when I was... Lion and the... Okay, okay well, I'm cutting that off. <laughs> Lion and the Witch. Matt, you're on T. Lion and the, the Witch. What's it called? <laughs> the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. That's the one. I was going to say Witch Robe. Uh, the, <laughs> the witch in the wardrobe i think i've seen that when i was a kid a long time ago but no not really definitely have seen none of the bbc versions oh you're gonna hate them it's gonna be great uh, <laughs> uh i just also just wanted to ask you guys what you think about adaptations in general are you the sort of person that demands uh real fidelity to the book or are you okay with people changing stuff I know I've talked on our show a couple of times before. At this point, we have covered all the BBC adaptations except for Silver Chair, and we've watched all the movies and the uh, 1979 uh, cartoon that CBS produced as well, too. And I have, uh, which is not great, by the way, <laughs> and I have always said that I do not mind adaptations um, making changes to the source material because, in my opinion, I can always go back to the source material. It's not like, you know, when they made The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, they burned the book and we're like, all right, now it's only the movie. That's the only thing that exists of this story. Like, it still exists. And so even if they change some things, I don't mind. In fact, I've gone on record as being, I'm a big fan of the Castle Raid and Prince Caspian, which I know a lot of people don't like, and that's a huge uh, addition to the text. Uh, so I, I don't mind adaptations taking things in uh, a new direction as long as it's good, uh, which is not the case with this movie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think I'm with you on that. I'm, I'm okay with adaptations changing stuff. It's a different medium. You have to do it. That's fine. But I just need to feel like the filmmaker understood the book and the changes come from that, which again is not the case in this movie. <laughs> what about you, Phil? Well, I, I was going to say I agree with that last point so much. As long as the team making the film truly understands the source material and then makes a change, I think that's fine. 
it's when the change goes completely against what the author may have intended. That's where you run into trouble. But I've also, I forget which movie this was. They made a movie directly from a book. It was line for line. Everything was exactly the way it was in the book. And people didn't like it because it doesn't, a book doesn't translate to the screen very well if you don't change a few things. Like the pacing is different. The way you narrate is different. Everything just needs to be altered a little bit in order to work on a different medium. And so I think that a lot of people think they want the book to be exactly the same, but once they actually see it, they don't like that. can't believe I'm more in the minority here, guys. Oh, really? Well, I mean, I, I, I agree. If it's, if, it's, <laughs> if it's done well, I'm just from my own personal experience being a book enthusiast and then sometimes going to see the movies, in very, very rare occasions have I been pleased with the movie. It, they've all let me down. Even one I did recently, um, oh, what was it called? It's that famous one, David. My brain is literally must be fried today. Oh, the famous one. <laughs> it's the, the Can you give me a slightly more. Oh, it's got the mu- It's got the musical. Jean Valjean, Les Misérables. Les Misérables. Les Mis. I read the book and I was like, the movie was terrible, awful. I watched all two. Or I watched the two recent ones with the Liam Neeson and the um, Hugh Jackman. Terrible. Hated them both. Uh, the only movie adaptation I think I have liked in depth is Lord of the Rings. Hmm. And honestly, it kept like every scene. I remember watching the movie thinking after, because I'd watched the movies and I read the book and then I watched the movies and I'm like, huh, they just, all the clever stuff that I thought the movie added, they didn't add. Tolkien had already written it. <laughs> <laughs> well, a few fun facts about this film. I looked them up. It was apparently the 12th biggest grossing film of 2010. And that year, it was 20th Century Fox's biggest grossing film. And it even had a, a royal performance. So Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II, uh, she attended it. And they screened it in 3D. And I don't know why we don't have pictures of <laughs> Queen Elizabeth wearing I want to see Queen Elizabeth glasses. with the glasses. Uh, but uh, yeah, let's, uh, let's, let's just move through the movie itself, the main story beats, and hopefully unpack why... Uh, well, at least why I personally regard this movie as the rise of Skywalker of Narnia movies. Oof. And I know I disagree with the Lamp Post listening guys on the recent Star Wars, but ugh, it, it had so many. Oh, no, we, we agree on episode nine, don't oh, worry. Okay. Was- it had so many of the same things. It was like wonky dialogue, serious pacing issues, lots of MacGuffins, lots of, oh, we now have to go over here and get that for some reason. Uh, and it was a confusing plot with plot holes and particularly in this movie, there was so much of tell, don't show. <laughs> so you had people articulating stuff just in case you know, the viewer is that stupid that they don't realize what's going on. Oh my um, goodness. This is fantastic that you're saying all this because I was the viewer that was like, oh, I really like this movie. I'm glad they're really spelling this out for me because <laughs> I've never seen a lot of the other ones. <laughs> in my notes, Matt, I've written, it's a movie for small children. Some small children. <laughs> I take it gracefully. <laughs> Uh, so I'm just going to walk through the beats and people jump in and tell me if you have any short thoughts to share so I really like the opening where it kicks it off with Edmund trying to enlist I I really felt like it was nice to see a little bit more of England for a change although that was that there was that really kind of weird point when Lucy learns to tuck her hair behind her ear yeah it was funny though when he used the name of Alberta, Alberta. It? Yeah, and he's like, it's Albert yeah. A. And then Lucy walks in, <laughs> Edmund. <laughs> I, I laughed. You know, I actually didn't mind that whole beginning uh, story beat with Lucy and the hair because I think one of my, I don't, I don't want to get too far, obviously, into the movie at all, but, you know, one of my 
the things I dislike about this movie is just how I felt like the themes are kind of all over the place as opposed to the book. And um, that was one of the few themes that I actually thought the movie held on to throughout the, in, the entire length of the film is this Lucy kind of feeling like she's in the shadow of Susan. And that does start from the first minute. So I actually appreciated that. Uh, it was a little on the nose, you know, but I'm like, okay, if I'm, if I'm a, you know, uh, maybe a preteen boy or girl watching that, I might be able to pick up on that theme pretty easily as opposed to, you know, uh, watching it as a daughter. If it was too subtle, maybe they wouldn't pick up on that. Yeah, uh, I, th- I think that's a, a fair point. I couldn't agree more. I can't wait till we get to the point of in the book when they brought in Lucy and Susan together that was not in the book, but it was in the movie. That scene was one of my favorite. I, I loved that scene. Well, the next scene we have is the introduction of Eustace and Uncle Harold hiding behind a newspaper. And I really liked the introduction of Eustace. I like the fact we get to pan through his room and see all of his bugs and his certificate for personal hygiene and (laughs) uh, even eating sweets and writing his journal. Because I wasn't entirely sure how well that was going to translate into a movie, but I thought they did a really great job there. Yeah, they did because you know that's one of the the best parts of Eustace in in the book uh, is is him writing in his journal. That's such a fun part. So much of his character comes out in uh, these personal diary entries that he's writing, and I think they did a great job putting that into just a couple of visual shots. And that again is a change in and in, in medium that the adaptation adapted. I think it did it well. Man, point for the movie again. It's going to go downhill fairly quickly. <laughs> yeah, I think it starts pretty well, though. I do think the movie starts off fairly well. It's it's not until, yeah, it's 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 until we get to the second part, which will be on our show, that it'll start getting, you know, really bad. So I see what David did there. By... <laughs> Just kidding. Well, it's uh, in the previous episode where we were talking about the books, my feelings towards the movie started leaking out. I just couldn't contain them. So it's like I, I needed to make sure that, uh, at least in this episode, I'm mostly positive. Um or at least more than I will be in the next one. It also didn't help when we were talking the last one. I didn't remember which was the book versus which was the movie because I, <laughs> I, I read and watched them both in like 48 hours. Oof. Now, I'm going to give the movie some more points. I really liked the, uh, the way that they set it up that Susan is with her parents in America and writing back. And because the war's going on, there's, there's difficulty getting back. And there were some small touches there that I thought were just lovely. So when Susan is writing her letter and we cut to her, there's a little lamppost ornament on her desk. Ooh, mm-hmm. that is a nice detail. Yeah, I thought it was lovely. <laughs> I also really appreciated that they had Susan appear on screen in the film because mm. they very easily could have just had uh, Lucy read the letter and you know not not pay for an extra cast member <laughs> but they didn't and I think it, it really came in handy later when they um, I think they used Susan to good effect um, when Lucy is seeing the effects of her decision and oh absolutely well and, and that's that's a good point because one of the biggest issues with adapting these books into movies is that um, and actually I think just recently we were, I think it was um, Dr. Crystal Hurd that brought this point up um, recently when we were talking to her a month or two ago and talking about how interesting these books are because they're each one is so different. She kind of compared, she had her like her hot take of like, you know, Harry Potter being kind of each, each one's pretty much the same until you get to Deathly Hallows. But, um, but with all of Narnia, like each book is, is extremely different. The themes are different. The characters change. And that's so great um, for a book series. But I think one of the things that Hollywood really wants to do is have some kind of, you know, thread from the first movie to the last movie. And it's why they've struggled to adapt 
uh, these books because, you know, like you said, they want to put Susan and Peter back in, but they don't appear in this book. But if you've watched the first two movies, you want to see your favorite characters return. And so they kind of find, and we'll get to this when we talk about the White Witch later down the road, like they try to shoehorn other things in because that's what you expect from a, you know, blockbuster series. Like to talk about, you know, Avengers, you expect to see the same characters in each one. And that's not what Narnia is. Yeah. Now, the next major beat is they're all in the bedroom uh, and looking at the picture. And it was quite strange because they change Eustace's poem from the book. It was like, all right, didn't you like Lewis's poetry? Bit harsh. Uh, But one of the things that they do in the movie, which I did like, is that they put a greater emphasis on the different kinds of books that the children read. And that came through quite strongly in the in the dialogue. Whereas in the book, it's all in Lewis's own commentary. When he's talking about, well, if, if Eustace had read the right books, he would have known that this was a dragon. So they actually brought that into the dialogue, which I thought was, I thought that was a really solid entry. And the humor throughout the movie was a little bit hit and miss, but in that scene, there were some ones I really liked when Eustace says, oh, rubbish picture. He says, well, you won't see it from the other side of the door. And, <laughs> and I found all of the sweets. I licked them all. <laughs> They really did a good job with um, both the casting for that, just kind of the way he comes across, but also the ability later on to behave a little bit better. Completely agree. I thought I thought the casting was very good. I thought some of the acting was a little bit hit and miss. I think some, nearly all of them mm-hmm. they can they could have done better jobs in certain scenes, but the casting I thought was superb. And then they have this big scene where they are pulled into Narnia. I love this because this it's a very difficult thing. I can't imagine. You know, trying trying to set up those those kinds of shots, uh, but I really love love the way that they get sucked through the pitch, or all the all the water comes out and fills up the room. Yeah, it's it's really well done. It's it's actually my favorite transition of the three movies, and all of them are. are very spectacular. I enjoy all of them, but this one, I, I love the juxtaposition of all of for even for not just for Eustace, but for um, for Lucy and Edmund too. There's all of this fear of we are drowning in a bedroom, and then just uh, the quick switch once they see the ship, and then they realize it's Caspian. Like that is just a really great uh, change in emotion and in overall atmosphere so quickly, and it's different than the first two transitions, which are usually just joy and discovery. And this one has a lot more fear in it in the midst of the transition, which I think is an interesting way to, to film it. More of a catastrophe. We're yeah. drowning. Oh no. Mm-hmm. We're now, uh, we now get to see Caspian again. What was the middle one transition again? In the movie, they were on the railway station. Okay. Cause yeah, I, I liked in the first one, how there's like, you're kind of, if you think of stepping into this country, where you're going to be the country of Aslan. This wasn't the full country of Aslan, but getting into Narnia, you're going through this unknown of a wardrobe, or here you're going through fear. And I do like how that's something when we think of our own faith journeys, unknown, uncertainty, fear, stepping out into that, being afraid. Sometimes they're like prerequisites in certain sense because it puts pulls us outside of our comfort zone. I don't remember exactly the what the second one looked like, but if that fits that same vein. But yeah, I, I agree. The fear was... The fear was recognized when I was watching it. They did it well. And just the way they stack things on top of each other, where the water's pouring out of the picture, then the room's completely flooded, then it seems like they're going to drown, and then they finally clear, and the ship is almost on top of them. Isn't it like that? Like the <laughs> night is darkest before the dawn. I mean, isn't that so true in the faith journey, mm-hmm. too? You get into these really dark spots, you think it's done, you're losing hope, and like those are the moments when the biggest change is happening. 
Although the pedant in me does have to point out that Lucy didn't kick off her shoes, which <laughs> Lewis tells us that she did in, in the in the book. It, it's kind of like his advice for being in a wardrobe. You know, he has to be this kind of avuncular figure and just remind children, never show yourself in a wardrobe. And if you find yourself in water, kick off your shoes so you can swim. Yeah, I wish he would have had some of his own kids, like little babies, because he's such a dad. <laughs> uh, although... It's now we start coming to the things that began to annoy me in the movie because they say, are we in Narnia? And they said, yes, you're in Narnia. It's like, no, they're not in Narnia. Narnia is the land, not the world. Uh, it's like, ah. And, and also when Caspian introduces uh, Lucy and Edmund, he refers to them as the high king and queen of Narnia. They're not. That's Peter. But I was oh, yeah. v- very pleased to see that Caspian's Spanish accent was gone. So you, you're glad that they got rid of it? Yeah, it, it, it lacked consistency, but... Ah, uh, fine. It, it was. It was. I think it was just Ben Barnes's portrayal just kept me, kept me thinking of Anigo Montoya. You killed my father. Prepare to die. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think I've even seen actually in some of the behind the scenes stuff that that might have been what uh, Andrew Adamson, you know, who directed the first two, was was kind of going for. Was the Princess Bride kind of thing in. Uh, and I, and what I was reading as I was you know doing research for for this episode was that. Um, the director for for Don Treader, uh, Michael Apted, literally came in and was like, "Hey, just get rid of that accent. I don't like it." <laughs> and, then, and Ben Barnes was kind of like upset. <laughs> then he was like, "He's like, no, I don't, I don't want to hear it." But I spent so long working on it. Since we're talking about Caspian, how do y'all feel about his age? That is something that I just really, really dislike about both Caspian and Don Treader. Here is he just feels extremely too old. I guess I, I'll start here. I didn't notice it. I guess it just didn't really cross my mind. I grew up watching Beverly Hills 90210, where you basically have a bunch of 30-year-olds saying that they go to high school. So I'm kind of okay with forgiving them this. <laughs> that is so true. I, that actually, when I learned that later in life, where I'd watch these TV shows or movies and people would be in college, and I would later look up and they were 28, 29. Mm-hmm. Like, well, that's why I feel so insecure and don't look like that. Because guess what? <laughs> They're not that. Yeah. <laughs> They're six to eight years older. But these men would be just full on beard and all this stuff. I'm like, that's not normal. <laughs> and I think that's true. I mean, I think I even think of like Tobey Maguire in high school in the first Spider-Man. He's like 32 years old. He's not really that old, but he's he's clearly not, you know, in, in high school. I think where it, where it bothers me, because Ben Barnes, I think, does a great job. I have no issue with him, is that so much of both Caspian and Don Treader is uh, is caspian kind of working through this arc of of wanting to compete with at first peter and then in this movie uh edmund and it just feels silly because it's like dude you're you're like feeling jealous of a 13 year old (laughs) you're like 25 years old (laughs) i think that's where it takes me out of it but he does a good job so i'm not you know unhappy with his casting just the age thing pulls me out of it a little bit i could see that Mm -hmm. because i do I didn't, I didn't notice that myself. It didn't like offend me. But now that mm-hmm. you bring it up, his journey from, and at the end, and again, this is me not remembering the book versus the movie, but at the end when he mentions he thought his journey was X, and then it was like, it was he, he thought he was always focusing on what was taken away from him, and then he starts realizing what was given to him or something like that from his father's mm-hmm. death. And I remember that was really powerful of the sub-theme of his own journey of understanding his calling and his mission and his life and how he views that. And so you are correct that you would assume that would be from a younger age person per se. Mm-hmm. And I'd also say that was a theme that just suddenly sprang up at certain points in the movie with no explanation. I think I think it was meant at some point to be a large arc. And yeah, I think it would have been good, but I thought they bungled that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they then get to Caspian's cabin. And I love that because you, you had, there were paintings all around of scenes from earlier 
books, earlier movies. Uh, and I even saw, it says, Once a King or Queen of Narnia written on the back. But it was in that scene where they start, I started to see some of the way that they changed the dialogue. Uh, so in the, in the book, when Caspian gives Lucy back her cordial, he says, take back your own queen. And in the movie, it's, of course, they're yours. It's like, mm, that's, 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 that's not quite so cool. Uh, I, although I did like the fact that they reintroduced Edmund's flashlight or his torch, whatever you want to call it, if you're English or American. Uh, <laughs> Wait, I didn't, and, I didn't what, was the, what was the back? I thought that was like a joke they put into the movie. So the flashlight was something from earlier? Yeah, remember he has it in the Prince Caspian movie as well too. They even use it in like the castle raid, and he the whole like the joke at the very end of the movie is, "Oh, I left my my new torch in Narnia," and everybody laughs. And the movie ends. I'm wondering if I actually watched <laughs> that movie, David. I'd have to go back and just see <laughs> because I don't remember the train scene. I don't remember any of this this movie. <laughs> I might have just read the book, honestly. Well, that's okay, but the movie's pretty good. I didn't hate it anywhere near as much as this one. Uh, because, of course, at this point, we have Caspian pining after Susan. He hasn't found anybody <laughs> to compare with your sisters. Like, let's, let's, let's keep this moving. And it was also in the cabin that we, that we hear about the major plot changes. It's not that Miraz sent the lords away to, to explore. Uh, it's now that they were fleeing from Miraz to the Lone Islands. And then other things happen, which are equally stupid. So... Well, we can't avoid it any longer. They arrive at the Lone Islands. What did you make of all of this? The arrival and ambush. This is, uh, it's not great. It, um, <laughs> so, so actually, and I'll, I'll say this first, because some of uh, the imagery here is, is really great. And this movie, you, could, you can clearly see that they had such a smaller budget compared to the first two. And from scene to scene, I mean, you can't tell if this is the BBC version in some of them and then other ones, if this is a major blockbuster made in 2010. It really is uneven. There's that um, establishing shot that was there arriving to Narrowhaven, and it looks awesome. It's kind of a city built. It's almost kind of like a ripoff of Minas Tirith or uh, where it's kind of a city built on a hill and you can see each level, but it looks, it does look cool. It still does look cool. Um, and just some of the feel of the Lone Islands, I actually rather enjoyed. Um, but th this is again where there's a huge uh, miss of what's actually happening in the three chapters that we spend uh, on the Lone Islands. Or I think it's actually just two chapters because, you know, Caspian and that smaller crew are supposed to walk across, you know, one of the Lone Islands and this is where, you know, they're, they're captured. And then really this whole segment, this episode is about Caspian really taking charge as king, right? Because then the rest of, of the book is him struggling with that responsibility. But it's here in the Lone Islands that he takes on that responsibility. And for us as, as readers, we actually see, oh, this is not Prince Caspian. This is King Caspian. And literally all that goes away in the, the movie. It's just an action scene. It's, um, there is no like Caspian working with the Lord Byrne to use his wits and wisdom over uh, his sword. And that just, that doesn't happen. It's just, no, let's just fight and we'll, we'll defeat them that way. It was so stupid. Also, just relentlessly, <laughs> I had so many questions. Why did they take Eustace on a dangerous raid? Uh, what was the point of the slavers ambushing them in the basilica? Why? Uh, why did you, you actually seem to see Eustace fighting with his torch, which is a bit strange since they went during the day. Uh, why did the slavers split them up? What was Lord Byrne doing in the prison all that time? And 
And also, it's in that scene where we get to see the mist. Would anybody like to talk about this? <laughs> I feel like I was already saying not nice stuff. So anyone else want to talk about the mist? <laughs> Someone else dump on this movie. <laughs> yeah, this is the one spot. This is not the one spot. This is a spot that I would definitely dump. I mean, I didn't know what was going on because I was, I'd read half the book at this time. And then I, for reasons I'm not going to explain, a chance to watch half the movie to be efficient. And so, and then I was going to go back to the other half of the book and... I was like, wait, what is this? Is this something from later in the book? Did they move it? This just doesn't make any sense. It was just, it was weird looking. It it put me off really quickly. I thought it was a terrible thing. I also love the fact that the boats, they put this, the people that they're sacrificing, just they get in the boat and suddenly the boats take off by magic. Apparently the, the mist knows which boats are filled with people that are being sacrificed. <laughs> <laughs> what, a, what an interesting way to consume Narnia content, Matt to read part of the book and then watch this movie and <laughs> wonder, wonder if you're even reading the <laughs> it same was, book. It, the, because now I have to defend myself. The 30 second <laughs> answer is I'm, I'm with my friend and this is not as been much alone time, I guess in the evening. So I was like trying to get this efficiently in. So we had a 45 minute drive and I'm like, Hey, perfect for me to download the movie and watch the first 45 minutes of it on the drive there and then back. And, and just splitting things up to be honest. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I just mean, it must be so confusing because when I was watching it, I think within, I don't know the exact time, but within the first 15 or 20 minutes, when you're usually supposed to be just like kind of getting into the story, I was very surprised because I thought, well, we have veered off course from the book. It was very confusing. Very, very quickly. Yes. I will say, the one thing I will say positive about the missed sacrifice, and there is nothing about the direct way they did it. This was their thing, I believe, of trying to create the thread that I didn't get in the book. They were trying to make it like, okay, what is this mist? And this was a suspense in the buildup, and you're going to learn more about this, and it's going to play a bigger role. I understand, or at least my guess is that's what they were attempting to do because the book didn't get me in that sense. I was like, okay, what's the big major plot? Like I was having a harder time with that. And so I think they were trying to do it with this mist sacrifice. Could have done it better. So question about this. If if this was not based on the Book of Narnia, and this was just a movie that you were seeing, how would you feel at this point with the mist? This is weird. Looks, it looks old and cheap. It looked tacky. Tacky is the word I want to use. It goes back to what you were saying earlier, Daniel, of when they were going in and it just looked like a cheap scene. I was like, this is just weird. It doesn't really fit. And, and it just feels so generic. It's like so generic and like fantasy. Oh, there's some mist and we don't know what it is. And you know, it's it's not even that there's a big change, although I do think that is the issue. It's just the change isn't good, you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, I do think that that the big issue here is there's a fundamental... Look, I'm not a Lewis scholar at all. I, I'm not saying that I understand Lewis's work more than the filmmakers do, but uh, I do. And uh, no, I'm, just <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. But um, I do feel like there's a fundamental misunderstanding of what this book is, is about. And that's just, again, that's my perspective. Um, but after having spent the last, you know, seven, eight months reading this book and reading each chapter so many times, this book isn't about saving the world. The book is about discovery and adventure. And I I think what the filmmakers are doing here are trying to make it about saving the land of Narnia. And that's just not what Lewis was portraying in the narrative. And I think, and again, I think some of the issues that come with adapting this as a movie where you have to string along, I guess they, they felt that they had to string along some kind of you know, uh, narrative thread. And so that becomes the green mist, but it, it just, it just doesn't feel, you know, like a, a good way to bring all of this together. And your comment there fits with Christianity, in my opinion. I and mean, 
we are meant to try to save people, evangelize. But if mm-hmm. you think about Christianity, Christ saved the world. Really, the adventure and the discovery is a lot more of our journey than, okay, Daniel, you have now decided to become a Christian. Now you need to go save the entire world. Like that is a byproduct. You want to attempt to bring people to Christ and share the message with them. But so much of it's going to be about your own journey and your own discovery of Christ's love for you and who you are in relation to him and knowing yourself and knowing him. And that's, I agree with you. That's what Lewis, I think, was trying to communicate here much more than, well, now you got to go save the world. But, and I, that's so good, Matt, because I think even in my personal life, I feel like so many times I get frustrated um, by, you know, all kinds of different things in my faith walk. And it's be, and a lot of it comes down to this thing of like, I'm trying to sanctify myself. And that's the issue. It's like, I, I'm, I've really misinterpreted what's supposed to be happening here. It, it's, it's God that's sanctifying me. And, or even if it's more an outward focus where it's, you know, like you said, evangelizing or justice or something else, there is this misunderstanding of, no, it's not me doing any saving or me doing any evangelizing. It's, it's Christ. And I'm just a tool in that. And I am frustrated because I have misinterpreted my role here. Mm, that was a good sentence there, Dan. Misinterpreted our role. Speaking of misinterpretations, I want to talk about the stupid rescue. <laughs> <laughs> David is very good about taking your last sentence and twisting it into his next. No, leg. that's good. He's like, I know how, he's, he's leading the charge here. Uh-huh. Well, it was so stupid. Uh, in the book, it, the, the way that they overcame the Lone Islands was clever. In this, it was like, well, let's just have a dumb fight. Uh, and speaking of dumb, the whole idea of them picking up Rince, because Rince was apparently the only person on that island who could sail and who had somebody dear to him taken. Um, yeah, it just, oh, it just seems so stupid. Um, and it's also at this point that we find out about the, basically that all of the other lords, they left the Lone Islands, but for some reason, Byrne stays in the Lone Islands for some reason. Uh <laughs> And he then immediately finds this sword, which looks like it's been hidden in a cave for hundreds of years by the sea. Uh, And the Lord Byrne explains that it was a sword that was given to him by Caspian's father. There was actually a gift from Aslan to protect Narnia. What? <laughs> this is like David. Do you know? Have you all ever seen like the things on the internet where they they make like some AI write a script for something? They like they like feed it every episode yes. of Seinfeld, and then a computer writes an episode of Seinfeld. I have. It's like it's like they threw all the Narnia books at a computer and like, hey, write a plot for us. <laughs> and it's like, ah, oh, Aslan found these swords. Also, this. I mean, it's this is it. It just becomes so generic. It's like what you know. That might and have it been changes the best. what we know about the Telmarines. Weren't they killing the old Narnians? Didn't they conquer? Wasn't that yeah. the point? But Aslan's handing out swords to them. It's like, good job. And, and why did Byrne stay there and keep his sword when we f- will find out very soon that that was the dumbest thing he could possibly do because those swords are needed, you know, miles and miles away at sea? Yeah, it, it turns, it really changes who Byrne is because when we look at it as, okay, these lords were going out, they were they were running away from the um, Miraz, and they were just exploring out further east. Well, Burn, I think he what he he finds someone, he he marries someone who lives in the Lone Islands, and he settles down. So he just gives up on the adventure to start a new adventure of family life, right? It's not, but here it's like, oh no, he's just a coward who like they had a, a mission and he just gave up, you know. <laughs> and I will say though, I actually really liked the inclusion of Rents as a um, a lone islander. I thought I the whole time in the book I kept confusing him with Rhinelf, and so I actually yes. was really happy to be like, okay, here's a distinction between uh, the two peoples. I didn't mind that. Well, they then go on board the Dawn Treader, and we get a little bit more of Eustace's journal, which I liked. 
the scene of him talking to the seagull, which I thought was funny, but then there was really hammy acting from uh, the Minotaur and another Narnian. Uh, I, I, oh, that, was the, that was the best take they got. Uh, and hey man, minotaurs are expensive. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, hmm. and then you have the incident where Eustace steals an orange, and this replaces Eustace taking water when they ran out of water. And here the stakes are far lower, and Reepeep is far more comic, you know, period, mm-hmm. exclamation mark, um, which is also just bad grammar. Come on, Reepeep. Uh, <laughs> uh, and Reepeep seems far more intent on teaching Eustace a lesson, as in nurturing him rather than it being a matter of justice and honor. I didn't mind that change so much. Yeah, it didn't offend me at all. I don't have something super deep to say here, but I, I either way would have worked with me. I, I do think in general that the relationship between uh, Reba Cheap and, and Eustace was pretty well done. It was, that was maintained but in the adaptation. I, th- I liked it. Yeah, it was a little different, but I was, I was okay with it. And then at the end of that fight, that's when they discover Gale, which I found really boring. And it seemed like she was only there just to give Lucy something to do. Uh, but then they come to the island of the Duffers. And I know the Lampice listeners weren't great fans of the Duffers. I think they're amazing. I love them in the book. Um, but it was also the stage when they, they, they really deviated from the order of the book. Uh, you know, it, Skipping over the Dragon Island, Burnt Island, and Deathwater Island will come a little later. Uh, but I didn't like the way they handled that. Lucy's abduction, it just seemed too rushed. And, and, and again, I just, they land on an island. I have a whole series of questions that just go unanswered. Why do they think it's uninhabited? They're just looking at it from a great distance. Uh, why go ashore and sleep on the beach? That seems strange. Why not set a guard? You know, remember what happened at the last island? You know, you should be a little bit more paranoid by now. And also, how the heck do creatures who can only hop manage to sneak up on anybody and not wake anyone up? David, you definitely need to be a consultant for movie creation. Yeah. <laughs> it was so, well, okay, I'll, I'll give the movie some props. I did quite like seeing the breath of, of the invisible creatures and, and to make it seem like they were these larger, more dangerous creatures. Um, but the, the problem I had with that is it was a smart thing for the Duffers to do, but the problem is Duffers aren't smart. Mm. You are you will catch inconsistencies real fast. I like it. And also just the the whole house being invisible I thought was stupid, just because surely that should mean that the land behind it is flat if you're seeing through it. But magic, fine. I'll I'll let it slide. <laughs> <laughs> That's what makes this so difficult is you're you're already suspending so much disbelief that the little things they can kind of be swept under the rug of, oh, this is magic too. But they really start to add up. Not for David. Not for David. There was an episode of The Simpsons with the, uh, is it Lindsay Lawless is her name? The girl who's behind Xena Warrior Princess. And in The Simpsons, uh, she's at a, at a panel like Comic-Con and a nerd gets up and is like, mm, in episode, blah, blah, in scene, whatever, uh, you were initially riding this kind of a dragon. And in the next scene, you can clearly see that the dragon's changed. And she said, oh, no, no, uh, a, a magician did it. Uh, and it, it said, well, what about an episode is a, a magician? Whenever there's something you don't understand, a magician did it off screen. Yeah, it's I, I am, you know, obviously we have Phil and I have been very vocal in our uh 
not being huge fans, uh, our dislike, I should say, of the Duffers. And uh, I, I, again, I don't like it here. And But I that's actually not what bothers me as much. I One, uh, it, it's weird. It feels like Tim Burton designed this set. It does not fit with the rest of this film at all. It's like, it just looks like straight out of like Edward Scissorhands or some kind of, like I said, yes. like Burton-esque thing. And that's completely uh, off of the book. The whole point of, again, I, I should not speak this uh, with, with this much. Uh, sorry, I'll say it again. Yeah, I should not speak with this much authority because I have zero. But the whole thing that's weird about this uh, island that they come to is that when they get to this house, here, here, Lewis says there were level lawns in which the grass was as smooth and as short as it used to be in the grounds of a great English house where 10 gardeners were kept. So what's odd and weird and magical about it is that it doesn't feel, feel odd or weird or magical. It feels very English. And as the 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 crew arrives... It, it is disconcerting because it doesn't stand out as being Narnian. And yet here we get here and it's a very Narnian feeling, you know, mystical, magical landscape. And at this point, we find out the motivation of the Duffers that they want her to go and re recite this particular spell. Again, lots of things have changed. They now know which specific spell they want, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and I, I, there were a few things in, in, in the spell room that I, that I rather liked. There was a very strong Harry Potter vibe, uh, but I did like the snow spell. And it was a nice callback to the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe when Lucy comes through the wardrobe and encounters the snow-filled land of Narnia. Uh, it, but we then immediately then have the green mist starting to appear, which is oh, it's just so on the nose. It, it's, it, it's just irritating. Uh, and it appears that the green mist is the one that takes her to the beauty spell. Um, and I, I think all of this, I think it actually takes away from the book because the mist can now be blamed for everything. It's not just because, you know, there, there are character flaws that they need to work on, but, oh, no, the mist made me do it. Uh, and the, I, I didn't, I also didn't like the fact that Lucy ripped out a page of the book. Why? Why not just do it then and there? And, you know, is, is she, she's adding property damage in addition to breaking and entering. It's like, come on. <laughs> yeah, I will say doing it where you're laying next to the girl was a weird spot to put it. Laying next to the girl? Oh, you meant later on when she does Wait, the spell on the ship. Oh. Later on in the ship. Mm -hmm. Yep. But I, I did really like the spell they did for invisibility. I went and looked it up. Like the P in psychology, the H in psychiatry, invisible ink, and the truth in theology. The spell is complete. Now all is visible. I thought that was kind of cute. Yeah, I enjoyed it. It was good. But rather in the book, when Aslan becomes visible, we, the emphasis is on Koryakin. And this was then just like the major exposition dump with zero explanation. Uh, Koryakin says that he made the duffers invisible to protect them from what lies behind the mist. Um, which then begs a whole lot of questions. It's like, so... Has now Lucy endangered them now that she's made them not invisible? Um, and also, why doesn't he then make the crew invisible when they go to fight the mist? Uh, and we find out that he was the one that sent the lords on to, uh, to, the, to the island to fight the mist, knowing full well that one of the lords is already back on the Lone Islands with his sword and therefore sending them to their certain death. I did think the map was kind of cool, though. 
<laughs> Here's all the stuff I hated, but the map looked pretty sweet. The map was cool. The, uh, <laughs> this, this was like one of those, and this was like a period, I feel like between like 2008 and 2012, where every major blockbuster had to have a couple of 3D scenes and they just stand <laughs> out so poorly to me watching it in 2020 when he like rolls the map out and it just comes directly at the screen. It just was like, oh man, you could, I remembered that this was supposed to be viewed in 3D. It was a dark time. <laughs> I, I do think this, that's another example of, I think there are all these things that movies feel like they have to do in order to compete. And they have to have a connecting thread throughout the story. And they have to tie everything up with a bow. And they have to have a fight scene like we saw earlier. And they have and, to have a beam going into the sky. Right, yeah. <laughs> and it, <laughs> I understand why they think that. And I also understand that the people that are making these decisions are probably the ones with the money. It's not necessarily the directors. Um, but it, it is very frustrating. And it really starts to add up the more you see it in multiple films. I so hope the director and producer listen to our episodes here and just send us an email out of the blue. <laughs> just Well, you know, our uh, our mutual friend Douglas Gresham, he spoke quite a bit about this um, back in November, right? Like, I, And I think, I, I won't share too much, because I think actually uh, William O'Flaherty has that interview uh, posted, I think, over in, on his podcast. But he talked about that this was... Um, there, there was not as much of a working relationship between the Lewis estate and this movie. There, obviously, they were working together, but there was a lot more um, distance. You know, exactly. Yeah, they they weren't working as well as they had on the first two. And I mean, he even said he was he was very uh, open about it that this was the one he's the oh, least that's proud so good. of. Good, I forgot. I was. I hate to say this. I was so tired. Mm-hmm. <laughs> It was a that long was a day. It was at the day. end, way past my bedtime. I think I was napping half of during half it. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, I think I think it was seven thirty. <laughs> that sounds about right. Way past my bad. That sounds about right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Time's in difference. Guys, it was a very. Did you guys time. catch Douglas's cameo in this movie? Oh yes. Oh yeah, where was it again? I forgot. He told us all about you it. You didn't all catch cameos. it. Where is it in this one? Even Matt oh, caught it. No, where is it? I he was really one forgot. Of the slave traders. He bid. He did a little bid. Oh, that's right. He did tell us that. I forgot. God. Don't. I noticed it right away. Yeah. That stuck out to me. It's like, well, oh, thank Matt. you. Thank you. That's all I wanted. No affirmation. <laughs> okay, so they leave Kuriakin's Island and they now have to follow this blue star, or at least when it eventually appears. But we then cut straight into a tempest and they're arguing about whether or not they need to go back. And that was, again, just some really strange dialogue because Drinian wants to turn back and Caspian talks about telling Rince that they're abandoning the search for his wife. Uh, what about, you know, weren't we looking for the rest of the lords? What about the evil that we've got to defeat? Otherwise, the land of Narnia will be in trouble. What about looking for Aslan's country? That was another big thing in this. The, the searching for Aslan's country in the end of the world is just not on anybody's radar. You know, Reaper Cheap likes his kind of song, but that's really it. David, you're making me feel like I just don't care enough in life. You don't. You don't. This should annoy you as much as it annoys I'm just, me. I'm well, going through all this. I'm hearing these things. I'm like, David's points are really correct. Didn't dawn on me at all during it. I was just watching it and mindlessly <laughs> taking in the content. And David is critically analyzing every sentence. I didn't sleep well the day after I saw this. I slept great. Just staring at the ceiling going, why? Why? Continuing Matt's point from earlier, I do think it'd be great to have David sit in the room with people who were adapting a book to the screen. Mm-hmm. And just 
he, he has to read every page. He has to prove every page. And he just gently asks questions or not gently, I guess. It won't, um, be, it won't just, be gentle. It won't be gentle after the no, first No, no, no. I'm very gentle. Well, how could this happen if this happens? It's like, oh, yeah, you're right. Uh, maybe I shouldn't. Maybe we should just make this better. Yeah. I, I think this all points to the fact that there's just so many competing interests uh, behind the scenes here. It's, you know, in some scenes, it seems like this movie is about saving all of Narnia. In other scenes, it seems like it is about uh, going on an adventure and exploring the East and Aslan's country. And then in other scenes, it's like, oh, it's to go um, save these people from the green mist. And so it just, and, and from what we heard from Douglas Gresham, it, it really sounded like that was what was going on, especially after, you know, it's now moved uh, studios from Disney over to Fox. There just are a lot of people who want this movie to be so many things, which is, and we can talk about this once we're done talking about the movie, which is um, an issue with Narnia because just being adapted because it people want it to be something that it isn't. And all those competing interests often can produce a product which isn't the best. Yeah, you just want to shout at them and say, stop flapping your wings like a drunken pelican. <laughs> okay, Matt. That, there that, it is. There's that, the bell. Beautiful, Boom! Beautiful. You still have to use it in public outside of people who have read. Shoot. <laughs> I thought this is my way of getting away with it. Uh, in, in the middle of the night, this is when Lucy, she casts the spell. And the spell has changed both in the text and in what it accomplishes. So what she reads is, Transform my reflection, cast into perfection, lashes, lips, and complexion. Make me she who at a degree holds more beauty over me. And so this is when she walks through the mirror and it, it, she sees Edmund and Peter and we sort of have a little it's a wonderful life kind of hint, the fact that what's now happened is that Lucy has ceased to exist. She has become Susan instead. And since Lucy never existed, the children never got into Narnia and therefore everything's different. This is my favorite scene in the movie. I know you don't like the placement. I'm fine. Placement can be somewhere else. I loved this. That's a powerful message. I mean, kids, young people watching this, it's, it is a message that needs to be heard. What would life be like without you? Stop looking at what someone else brings to this world. Look at what you bring to this world. I mean, that, that, if you can just live your life that way, that's an incredibly profound message. And so I loved how they did that. It even hit me. I was like, huh, what would life be without Matt Bush? David would be a little more sane, but I mean, there's a lot of others that'd be hurt. <laughs> Tony Stark wouldn't have a friend. Exactly right. <laughs> the world <laughs> would die without Captain America. I mean, me. <laughs> I'm glad you reiterated the part about the about the spell, um, because I was confused when I saw it. When someone reads a spell and it starts rhyming, I think I kind of tend to tune that out a little bit. I'm not paying attention to what is actually being said. So I thought that her desire was to be more beautiful. And the only way to do that was to replace Susan and for Lucy to never exist, which didn't make a ton of sense to me. So I'm glad that you brought up the fact that this, that, that is what the spell was for. That makes much more sense. Mm. And this is an area of the adaptation. I actually thought was pretty good. I, I was totally down with it being about, okay, I want to have never existed. I want to be the person that I'm always looking up to rather than simply an exterior appearance. One of the quotes I loved, and I don't remember exactly how it went or who said it, but it said, when you die, God's not going to say, why weren't you Mother Teresa? Why weren't you Moses? Why weren't you so-and-so? He's going to say, why weren't you Matt Bush? And I, I, I remember reading that maybe in eighth or ninth grade and thinking, wow, that's profound. 
And then the next question becomes, who is Matt Bush? And that's like what that, going back to what you and I were talking about earlier of that discovery and that journey of figuring out who we are in the eyes of God and our mission. What was the context that you read that? Someone wrote that to you? It's a fantastic question. I'm going to have to chalk that up to show notes and Google it. It'll probably pop up. <laughs> As David knows, I never remember the details. I get the thing that hips me and impacts me, and then I let the rest just fall to the wayside. Yeah. It's like being able to quote scripture, but not being sure where which verse it is. But now we have... Well, um, David, now we have David knows engines. all about that. <laughs> I'll be like, isn't there some verse that says this? And David would go, Philippians 4, 2, here it is. <laughs> and then following lucy's attempt at magic she destroys the spell and then after that they have bad dreams because the mist can do that for some reason and that brings us to about we get an appearance by tilda swinton oh god so stupid (laughs) don't get david going we need we need a thread connecting all the movies (laughs) oh don't worry we have a lot more to talk about that in part two (laughs) Uh, and But that takes us to about the halfway point in this movie. So it's probably a good time to wrap up this episode. Any final thoughts before we uh, we take things to a close? I know we've been talking, you know, about a lot of the things we dislike, but I, I will say that I am glad this movie exists. Um, I'm not someone who's like, oh, it just would have been better if they'd stopped at two or something. But I, there are so many great parts of seeing this movie adapted uh, with a large budget like this. I know it was obviously a smaller budget than uh, the first two, but it still is like a, you know, it's a large blockbuster. And it's it's great to see these things on screen. Like no matter, you know, how the rest of the movie goes, that first scene as they transition into Narnia, it really does feel magical. And you know, and I, I see even from our own listeners over on our show, just how many people engaged with these books first through the movies itself. You know, there's, I mean, someone catches this movie on 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 cable, right? And uh, then goes and opens the books. So it's totally worth it to me. And so I, I, I do, I, I am glad that this movie exists. And on that uplifting note, <laughs> Daniel and Phil, <laughs> thank you for coming on our show. Thanks for having us on. It's been delightful. Absolutely. And we want to thank our Patreon supporters as we like to do at the very end, particularly our top tier supporters, John, Kate, Rowdy. You guys make this possible. Thank you guys so much. And all of our other ones as well, because this is a ministry and we're, I mean, people giving their hard-earned dollars to be able to support this. We love doing this. It's so much fun to be able to have people like Phil and Daniel on to have these episodes edited. It's just fantastic. So thank you guys so much. And join us on the next episode when we'll be finishing Voyage of the Dawn Treader. And we're going to be going... Further up. And further in. Cheers. Cheers. Cheers.